This morning, Jackie comes uh, to provide us, I guess, with some understanding and insight uh, from a, a, psychologi- a psychologist um, perspective. So Jackie is married to Matt. Come on up. Uh, she has two of the most confident kids I've ever met in my life in uh, Joel and Toby. Uh, she runs her own um, psychology practice uh, in, in Melbourne, and she's also part of the community at uh, Fitzroy North Community Church. So let's give her a warm uh, baby welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Steve, for inviting me to come and talk, because this is an area that I'm really passionate about. And as Steve said, I'm not going to be sharing a whole lot of scriptures, but putting the framework around it all that God created us, and he created us with emotions, and he is part of how we can live that in the fullest. What I'm going to focus on, though, is some practical understanding and some practical strategies that we can all use to have the best emotional health that we can. Now, I love being a psychologist. I get to have amazing experiences of helping people get out of places where they're stuck and become more of who they've been created to be. God created us with emotions. And I remember when I was in year 11 and started studying psychology, I had a number of people say to me, how can you study psychology as a Christian? I'm like, I don't see the gap. I don't see the difference. So I kept studying it, trying to work out what it is. And to me, when we look at it as God created us with emotions... It's the emotions we're working with. God created us with thoughts, our ability to think and reason. And that's what, as a psychologist, I work with. And he created us with a body that can act and do. And again, that is what I work with to help people optimise who God created them to be. Now, before I talk about anxiety and depression, I want to talk about what good emotional health is. There are so many different emotions that we all like the happy ones, peaceful, excited, joy. I don't ever have someone come to me and say, I'm having a bit too much joy, can you please help me? (laughs) Generally, some of these are the ones that we don't like so much, they're not quite so comfortable. Sadness, frustration, worry, anger, being irritated. These are the ones that just don't feel quite so nice. And what is important when we're looking at emotions is that they're in proportion to the situation. So if someone hurt one of my children, I would get angry. It's probably more helpful that I get angry than I'm happy about it. I think we'd be more concerned if I was happy about something like that. But it's what we then do with that that's the important thing. We want our emotions to tell us something has gone on that then we can choose how we act in a helpful way for what our goals are, for what our values are, for what's important to us. Emotions are a flag that something's going on. And what happens with our emotions is we'll have a physical sensation that comes first. So we might be a bit jittery in the stomach. We might feel a bit tense. And what happens is our brain then tunes into that and can work out, okay, there's an emotion going on. Our brain then tries to reason and understand why that's there, what it's trying to tell us so that we can then respond in a helpful way. And many times each day, I'm assuming for all of us, that works really well. We have a feeling, we respond to it, we act. And when we can do that, we end up with good emotional health where there will be sadness, where there is sadness. There can be frustration when things don't go the way we want. But it's what we then do with that that becomes important. So then when we look at what anxiety and depression are, this is the 
emotional bit that starts making us a bit more stuck in life. It makes it harder to move forward in the way we want to. What does it look like? I think one of the really important things to understand with anxiety and depression is it can look normal from the outside. You will have friends or family or colleagues or neighbours that just seem content and happy. I've got a friend who has quite severe depression, but she is one of the most bubbly, confident, charismatic people, but suffers a really, really dark depression. And so I think it's really important not to make assumptions of how someone's feeling based on how they look from the outside. Having said that, some people may appear really flat, heavy, burdened, where their affect, their expression doesn't change much, where everything's slowed down and there's a weight about them. And sometimes when we're with these people, we can feel it ourselves around them. There's a heaviness there. It may also have a restlessness or an agitation. Sometimes people who are really anxious can feel like you're only reaching a facade because it's like all their energy is going into containing these feelings that you don't feel like you get to the real person. So what it looks like can really differ from person to person. We can't know what someone's feeling by looking at them. And I enjoy being challenged by this in my job all the time because someone can come in and I know not to make assumptions because often the assumptions that we all automatically make aren't right. It's only when you ask questions can you find out the truth. With anxiety and depression, people often lose enjoyment in activities, stop enjoying activities, stop looking forward to things, often avoid. So they might be going through the motions but there's just not the feeling there anymore. Or you might have friends or family and you start noticing, hang on, they're not turning up so often. They're racing out the door a bit quicker. Hmm, what could that mean? Sleep, appetite or weight may change. And it's interesting in older adults, a lot more of these signs happen rather than the emotions. I remember my husband's grandma would have been nearly 20 years ago, was really unwell and had stopped eating. And so we all raced up to Queensland to stay, say goodbye to her. And then I'm not sure how the doctors decided to do it, but they decided to give her an antidepressant. Within a week or two, she was eating and then lived for another five or ten years because the depression was why that had happened. And so, again, if there's significant change in yourself or in someone else, it's a flag. And one of the key things that happens with anxiety and depression is we don't function as well. And that might be in our personal care, so something simple as having a shower can just feel like a mountain. Our domestic tasks, our housework, our routine just becomes harder and often inconsistent. As I said, socially we might be doing less, look forward to it less, might stop turning up, might get overwhelmed by bigger groups and always only want the smaller group or prefer to go to a bigger group where we can just have superficial conversation and not have any depth, anyone ask how we are and mean it. Or our work activities, volunteer or paid work, might be impacted. And so this is a bit of what anxiety and depression can look like. What causes it? I don't think we fully know. We can have, retrospectively, we can look at someone and go, OK, they're depressed. I think it could have been A, B, C and D. But we're not always great at predicting it. But some of the things that do influence it can be ignoring emotions. Like I said at the start, God's created us with emotions and when we work with them healthily, they tell us something, they change our action, they come and they go. 
When we ignore our emotions, often what can happen is they build up. So when we don't listen to them or don't validate them, anyone ever told you not to worry or you've told yourself not to worry? Did it fix it? I think it's the most useless statement that we all say, don't worry, it'll be fine. If it was that simple, we wouldn't have worried in the first place. So if we don't listen to it or validate it, saying, you know what, you're worried. Let's now look at what we can do about it. When that happens, often emotions get louder. The analogy I think about is when you've got a two-year-old child. When my children were two, if I tried to ignore them, what happens to children when we ignore them? They get louder, especially when you're on the phone or doing something important. They have a really good ability. Actually, it keeps going past two. Eight and ten-year-olds are really good at trying to get your attention as well. They get louder. Our emotions get louder. So we might get more worried, more frustrated, more sad, which can then lead to anxiety and depression. Interestingly, what will then sometimes happen is if we still don't listen to our emotions and we still don't validate them, it can end up with a physical manifestation. So I see a lot of people, I specialise in the area of chronic pain, I see a lot of people who themselves will identify, oh, here were warning signs and now my body's shutting down, it's stopping me to get my attention. So that's why, to me, it's so important of what do we do for good emotional health as a preventative strategy for all of us. Grief and loss, if it isn't dealt with well, often leads to depression. I'll talk about that in a bit more detail in a minute. There can be a gradual build-up over time when there's different situations or circumstances. And for some of us, there can be a biological predisposition. There's sort of a genetic sort of tendency. Now, the hard thing is to look at that one. If we grow up in a family where there's depression and anxiety, how much of it is the genetics? How much of it's the modelling? How much of it is this and that? And to me, often it doesn't really matter why it's there. It's more important to go, it is there. What can we do about it? What can we do to change what's going on? Now, grief and loss... These aren't eyes, by the way. They might look like eyes, but they're not. In our society, we give permission to people to grieve if there's a death, as long as they're close enough to you for a certain period of time. So if my husband dies, society will let me grieve, won't they? I could probably even get a couple of days off work. People might bring a meal or two. They'd help out with the kids for a bit, for a few weeks, maybe months, but maybe not in five years' time. Now, if it's a neighbour's friend's cousin that died, there's not much space for me and validation in our society for me to grieve. So we have these rules in our society. I was speaking to a client the other day who's Ethiopian and his wife's uncle had died. So everyone from around the world comes together for an entire week. And he made a comment, our grief is not... What's the comment? It was basically saying, it doesn't work. And I said to him, what do you mean? And he goes, well, in, our, in Australian society, our way of grieving doesn't work because you can't get five days off work every time any extended person dies. Yet there's something beautiful about that, of the coming together and acknowledging that grief that it, I think has some lessons that we can learn. So with bereavement, it's validated in our society but again, there's rules about how close and how long. I remember when my dad died nearly 10 years ago, 
people would say to me after a month or two, oh, is it getting easier with time? I went, no, he's now been gone longer. There's more things he's missed out on. Time doesn't always make it easier. Time can make it harder. So there's bereavement. There's then what we call disenfranchised grief. Disenfranchised grief is the grief that society doesn't validate. That might be the grief that happens when your adult children move out of home. There's a loss. It might happen when you lose a job that mattered to you. It might happen when there's a financial stress and you dream of a holiday, the travel can't happen. You never even had the holiday, but you had the dream of it. And now that it's lost, there's a loss. And this is the grief and loss that in our society we don't validate. And we don't validate it to ourselves. We might go through a health experience and lose some of our independence or our mobility or being involved in sport. We might lose our eyesight. We might not be able to drive independently. All these different things are losses. And so what we want to do is look at how can we deal with that grief and that loss in the most adaptive way. So our first I... The white circle represents our life. When there is grief or loss, whether it's bereavement or some other sort of loss, the black hole is that grief and loss. It's big. And I'm pretty sure all of us will have experienced some loss in our life. When it first happens, it can feel huge. It feels like it fills so much of who we are. The problem is the way we talk about it with people, it implies that the second picture is what's meant to happen. Over time, it should get smaller. It should get less. We have these rules. The problem to me with that is it implies that the significance of what I've lost gets less. So my dad now matters less to me than he did 10 years ago. I don't think it's very respectful to my dad. But that's really what we start implying in our language around grief. Whereas the third one, the grief is the same size hasn't changed. The significance of that can stay the same. But what's happened is our life can expand around it. We can make our life bigger with new relationships, new experiences, new opportunities. What that means in a day-to-day basis is we may bump into the grief less often. So over time it can feel a bit less, but sometimes when we bump into it, it hurts and is yuck just as much as it ever was. And that's one of the things I often say to people with grief, expect the unexpected. We can be really good at assuming birthdays will be significant if there's a bereavement or particular events might trigger a sense of loss. But what I've discovered with grief doesn't tend to make sense. As soon as you think you've got it sorted, it'll pop up somewhere else when you're least expecting it. When you've got space for that, when you're not then overwhelmed by that black spot and going, you know what, that's actually respectful of that loss to go, there is a sadness there. We can then expand our life around it. How do we do that? There's two ways that we grieve. There is practical grief and emotional grief. Now, it's a bit scary, but not that long ago, one of these was called masculine grief and one was feminine grief. Which one do you think was which? (laughs) So practical grief is the getting on with stuff, the pragmatic, the doing. So if someone dies, that might be discarding items or... Um, cleaning things out, organising a funeral, some of those things. If it's loss of a job that mattered to you, it might be getting a new job. 
It's the doing. It's expanding that circle, expanding your life around the grief. Then there's emotional grief. And this is the crying or sitting with the sadness, the rituals, the remembering, looking at photos, allowing space for those emotions. When we look at what healthy grief is, we need both. We all do. How much of each differs between people? There'll be some people who their natural way of dealing with things might be the more practical or might be the more emotional. So it differs between us. It also differs between situations. It can even be you have one family member die and you have one response and another one dies and you have a completely different response. There's no rule book for grief. And over time, the amount of each can change. There might be some practical things early on that need to happen, then a whole bunch of emotions and then a bit more practical as life moves forward. But really it's looking at with grief, how do we manage both? How do we respect the emotions that are part of it, that tell us there's a loss, that acknowledge the sadness and the joy? I often talk to my boys about emotions and I talk about the fruit salad of emotions. You know how you can be happy and sad at the same time? You can be content and worried and hopeful and disappointed. Somehow these things that we talk about as opposites can actually coexist. It's a fruit salad. And that's often when our emotions get overwhelming, when there's so many different parts to it that are going on. What else can we do about our emotions? What can we do about anxiety and depression? There's heaps we can do. And to me, I think it's one of the really important things because there's knowing there's something we can do is what gives us hope. And to me, one of the biggest signs of depression is the loss of that hope that heaviness, the darkness of not seeing a way forward when depression can get quite severe. So we need hope and there's lots we can do. Now, the strategies I'm going to talk about now I love because they've been around for a long time and now a lot of the research is showing how the way our brain changes when we use these strategies. So some of you will have heard the term neuroplasticity. Basically, our brain's not hardwired, it changes. God has created our brain to allow us to change the way we think, the way we behave, the way we feel. But the problem is that doesn't happen by accident. Same with like getting fit. You don't get fit by sitting on the couch thinking about getting fit. You get fit by going and doing exercises. Same with our emotional fitness. Only if we do something constructive and healthy consistently do we become more emotionally healthy. So exercise, really, really, really powerful strategy. It is as effective as antidepressants for improving depression. And there's no side effects that we don't want. So really powerful. The problem is when you're depressed, the last thing you feel like doing is getting up and doing some exercise. And that's where as friends or family, we can sometimes do it with someone. Be that support. Sleep. I don't know about you, but if I don't sleep, my emotions are a lot more like this. <laughs> Little things can cause big reactions. And there's heaps even just in that area of sleep that we know can be effective strategies. So if you don't have good sleep, it's worth seeing someone because that can turn things around for how your mood and thinking change. Pleasant activities, doing things you enjoy. Now, one of the hard things is, as I was saying, you've stopped enjoying things if you're depressed, but now you need to do things you enjoy. But there's nothing I enjoy. So we can end up feeling stuck. And often what I hear people say to me is, but I don't enjoy things the way I used to. It's like, no, you don't. But let's start doing something. 
And the problem is with pleasant activities, the chemicals that the brain releases when we do these don't last very long. So the good news is you've got to do them lots and regularly. Again, it's like an antidepressant. Do them daily. Find things you enjoy. Now, that doesn't mean you don't also do your responsibilities and the things that need to do, like go to work or clean the house or those things, but it's finding the things you can enjoy in what you do in your everyday life. Staying engaged and connected even when you don't feel like it. Even if it's smaller amounts, bite-sized bits. Because once you get disengaged from people or community, it's really hard, it can be, to get re-engaged. So staying somewhat engaged. Relaxation. Now, relaxation is the body calming down. So breathing, muscle relaxation. It's different from a relaxing activity. Because I remember having a client say to me one time, I don't know, I do relaxation all the time, I watch movies. I said, what sort of movies? Thrillers. I'm like, mm, I'm guessing your heart rate's probably going that way if you're watching a thriller, not that way. We want to slow it down. That can help manage the anxiety. Now, when you're really anxious, trying to slow down, though, is really hard. So what can be more effective is to go for a walk and use up some of that yeah, agitation and then try and calm down. Connecting with friends and achievable goals, having a sense of achievement. Our thinking is really powerful. And these are five of the common thoughts that I find drive most emotional distress. Should, expectations. We have so many shoulds for ourselves and for others. The problem is we don't always do what we should do. And sometimes we do things we shouldn't do. And so do other people. What should leads to is guilt, frustration and anger. But doesn't change reality. We don't want to pretend things that matter to us don't matter though. So instead of should, it's more helpful to think I would like, I would prefer, my values are this. When we speak like that, there still might be some disappointment but it doesn't lead to the same levels of anger. Have to. Have to decreases our sense of control, which increases pressure and anxiety. I don't believe there's anything we have to do in life apart from be born, which we've all done, and die, which we'll do at some point. We do things because we choose based on consequences. But when we're stressed, we don't think about that. We feel like we have to, have to clean the house. We don't. I clean the house because I would like a clean house. I'm going to go to that social event, not because I have to, I'm going to go because I want to stay connected. I'm going to exercise because I want to be healthier. When we own the consequences and the choices, we're back in the driver's seat of what we're doing rather than our emotions driving us. Can't. When we get to the can'ts, we feel stuck, we can't problem solve. And it's more helpful to think about it's hard and difficult and what can we do about it rather than getting stuck in the can't. With anxiety, one of the common thought patterns that happens is questions. What's going to happen? Will I cope? What's the future hold? Will I get better? Will I not? What's going to happen? Will I sleep tonight? And our brain can go at an incredible rate with all these questions. With questions, it's a really simple strategy is to answer them as best you can. Now, if you knew the answer, you wouldn't ask the question. So the best answer is, I don't know. Will I get better? I don't know. What I do know is that I'm going to get the help that I can get. Focus then on what you do know. And then wishful thinking. As I said, depression, deep depression is the absence of hope. We need wishful thinking. But wishful thinking needs action and or acceptance with it. We can't, there's no benefit in just wishing 
I was a millionaire, wishing I was a millionaire. If I do that for two weeks, I'm going to end up depressed because I'm not a millionaire. I either need to accept that that's not going to happen or find a new husband or a new career. So we need to have action or acceptance with where we're at. So as we change our thoughts, as we deal with our feelings, it helps manage depression and anxiety better. And there's things that we can all do just in our everyday life to help that. But if we get stuck, if we're not changing, if friends or family aren't changing, that's when it can be really helpful to get professional support. One of the verses I love in Proverbs is the guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. What we do with what's in us will shape where our future goes. A question I often get asked is, how do I support other people? And there's a clip, a video that I want to just show you for two minutes that talks about this a little bit. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, <laughs> it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no. You want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think a marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now, I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. Since I first saw that clip, my business partner and I, whenever we say at least to each other, it comes with a joke because we will say, at least, let's look at the silver lining, let's try and be positive. But it's the connection that matters and that's something that we can do with each person in our lives is build that connection. Now, it's interesting, a lot of the research now is talking about the difference between emotional contagion, 
where you get stuck feeling everyone else's stuff and you can end up feeling as yucky as they do, or empathetic concern. And that's what we want to do is have compassion for people, empathetic concern where we want to help someone change their situation but do it through connection. So keep connected in manageable ways. Ask them how they are with curiosity. That genuine curiosity where we're actually willing to listen to the answer. Ask them what's helpful. Because often when someone's going through a hard time, people often then avoid that person because they're not sure what to do. Straight say, what's helpful? Is it helpful for me to ask? Is it helpful for us to organise a catch-up? Is it helpful for space? Not what do you feel like? Because what they feel like is often not what's helpful. And if you're concerned about someone, it's giving options that you're happy with. So I, I wouldn't recommend saying to someone, do you want to see a psychologist or not? No. Okay. This is going on for a while. I think it'd be really good to get help. Do you want to chat to your GP about it or do you want me to help you find someone? Two options. What that does for someone who's stuck in that place, they can still feel like they've got choice. They do, but it's a way that's going to help them move forward beyond what they can see. So there's a little bit of information about depression and anxiety and what we can do about it. And Steve also asked whether we can open up for some questions. So has anyone got any questions? Hi, um, I'm a school teacher and I teach secondary and a lot of my teenagers, um, they have these sorts of issues and I try and offer them the sort of advice, you know, how you were saying about things like um, connecting with friends and doing things that relaxes them and um, a lot of that other stuff you were doing. And they say that they do, they say that they get really into their online computer games and that ticks all those boxes for them, except they don't get any sleep and they don't exercise and the problem seems to just get worse. What can I say? What do you say about this online gaming as a method of this relaxation and doesn't work? Connecting? No, I didn't think so. So what can I say to them? And that's it's. I think doesn't help you with the students this year, but over the next few years, there's heaps of research coming out around um, the false connection, the online connection breeds, because. It's a facade, it helps create the fa false image that people have, so it actually breeds that feeling of vulnerability and isolation. Um, and so getting into an argument or debate with anyone about anything that's helpful, you're not going to win it. So what can be more helpful is say, absolutely, that's great, that gives you that. What amount of time are you going to limit that to so that you can also do other things? Um, now, ultimately, they need to own it and want it enough for it to actually follow through on behaviour, but it can be looking at more the conversation of not exercise is good, so how can you fit exercise into your week? Where can that be? Can it be that you walk to school instead or can it be with a friend? And that, Because that's often the problem. They can't even think they lose sight of it. Um, as a teacher, obviously, your scope is limited as well because it depends how the family environment is supporting any of those behaviours as well. So I'd say computers, technology, I think we're going to see rates of depression and anxiety increase dramatically um, with those because they don't help. Hi, Jackie, my name is Bulan. I'm glad to meet you. Um, three weeks ago, I found out there was a um, tragic circumstances of my grandmother's passing, which none of our family knew about. 
um, I shared this with my mother, and my mother's um, thinking uh, perhaps my dad doesn't know the details of it. And um, since I found that out, I start to realize all the um, behaviors or feelings or patterns of my dad. I start to understand why this might have happened. Um, now, this happened 50 years ago. Is it worth for us to go back and revisit that or mm. uh, just whether we're making it worse by addressing it to my dad? I'm not too sure. Mm. Yeah. And that's always a tough one, something's in the past, what needs to be unpacked, so fixed and what doesn't. One of the questions I always ask is, how's it impacting on function today? How's it impacting on relationships today? Because there's always a cost when you open something up you don't, and you don't know what it is. Um, so one is, if, and this can be anything, you know, trauma, experiences in the past. To me, you want to deal with the now bit of it, how it's impacting now. So if there feels like there's then not honesty in communication, that's the bit you need to deal with. Or if it's they're stuck in their grief, they might need extra information to move forward in their grief. But if things are overall working now, I'd say don't poke the bear because you don't know what's going to happen. Having said that, then for you, without knowing any of the details, it can then be about what you need to do in terms of forgiveness or letting go or some of that. And so to me... It's looking at, yeah, what needs to be unpacked can be related to how it's impacting now and what can we do to accept or allow that moving on. And I think it's acknowledging that as humans, my view of humans are we're all trying our best in whatever way to do the best we can and having that sort of grace around it. So hopefully that helps a little bit. Just take one more question. Uh, thank you. I once heard, which I think was a Chinese saying, it take you a long time to get a sick, it take you a long time to get a better. Now, with a broken leg, you have a fair idea of how long your healing will take. But with emotional sickness, with mental sickness, how long would it be practical to think mm. that you might get healing? This is an interesting one. I think... It varies from person to person. I think as a society, we allow things go on for too long. I think it is reasonable there is some change in the function. And again, I come back to function. So someone who's diabetic may stay diabetic for life. Someone who has some depression may have that predisposition, that tendency for a long time. But in order to get change in how it impacts their daily life, to feel better, to be able to do more, I actually think with the right input... Eight sessions. So with my clients, if I saw someone, I'd expect within six to eight sessions there should be change happening. Um, that doesn't mean their life's perfect, but I don't know if any of us have a perfect life. It can be messy and complicated, but change ideally is happening. If it's not, it's looking at, well, what else can be done to try and get that change? But as I said, the key thing is that's about functioning in some way, improving the function. The emotions still might be doing this. Um, so that's for the majority of people. I think there are some people when there's longer-term patterns and sort of deeper issues that need to be sort of worked through as part of that, obviously it can take longer. So if it's not for any of you who know someone who's actually seeking help, whether it's medication, a psychologist, a counsellor or something like that, 
If it's not improving after 8 to 10, I'd be asking the question. They might go, because of this and this and this, I think it's going to take longer. Fine. But not to let it keep going. Because in one of my roles, I'm a consultant who reviews psychologists' treatment. And I'll speak to psychologists who are seeing people a couple of hundred times. I'm like, what are we doing to help these people function better? So most, like broken bones, six weeks, eight weeks, most of it should be able to get a decent shift. Some people have bones that don't heal. And some people have depression where it's then looking at how you manage it in the long term. Jackie, that was fantastic. Why don't we give uh, Jackie... Uh